Today's spoken word is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of law. Or is the God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So we have a lot to talk about today. But before we do, let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful this morning for a chance to be together in this place, as a church family, as friends. We pray uh, that as we explore this passage, um, that you would teach us this morning what it means to follow you, maybe more closely than ever. We pray all these things in your precious name. Amen. Well, good morning again. Welcome to the Boulder Church. We're an Adventist faith community, and we're glad that you've chosen to worship with us here today. Uh, If we haven't met, my name is Eliah, um, and I'm part of your church family. So, uh, there are very few times in my life when I've actually wanted to be a police officer. A doctor, sure, there was a time for that. Uh, Musician, architect, artist, pastor, even a screen printer. Um, Times for all these things, but almost never, almost never a police officer, except for those rare occasions when I'm behind the wheel in my Toyota hybrid SUV and I'm driving peacefully down the road and someone else happens to be there. They might be driving too fast, they might be driving too slow, they might be refusing to use their blinker, they might have been using their blinker for way too long. Jerry Seinfeld, I think, calls that an eventual left. On these and some other circumstances, uh, I wish that I had the button in my car that I could push that would turn on the lights and the siren, and I could invite these, I'm sure, very 
kind, loving people over to the side of the road for a conversation about how the law actually ought to work. But maybe it's a good thing that I'm not a police officer. Speaking of police officers, and Pastor Japheth is away this week, so I can pick on him a little bit. Some of you know that uh, Pastor Japheth's uh, transportation situation has changed somewhat recently. He used to drive a Volkswagen Touareg. You know the car? Some of you have ridden in it. And the people at Volkswagen used to have a term that they used in their marketing campaigns, uh, Farfagnugen. And it sounds like kind of a silly word, but it's German, so we know it's very serious. It means the joy of driving, as in, you'll get in the car, you will enjoy the driving. <laughs> Yo! Um, to my German friends, I'm sorry. Uh, to my Swiss-German friends, which really would just be Jessica, I'm not that sorry. Um, but if you've ever ridden in the Touareg with Jafet, you know what it is to experience the joy of driving. And so it was a few weeks ago when I turned up for church and I noticed the Touareg was not in the parking lot. And there was another smaller different car in its place. And it was still, still a beautiful car, still a Volkswagen, still Farfagnugan, still the enjoyment of driving. But I couldn't resist because the, the Touareg had such a presence on the road, you know? It was such a, it was a beautiful, so, but this was also beautiful, um, but I couldn't resist. I came in, I said to Jafet, I said, oh, new car. He said, well, yeah, and he started to tell me some of the reasons and started to tell me about the features of the other car. And I couldn't resist myself. I said, it's very, and I paused for emphasis, cute. And I said it because I knew he loves that car. I knew he loves the tour. And I, I should also go on record because I know we're streaming live. There will be people. Japheth, I'm sure, is watching from across the ocean. And so for any authorities that are, are watching with Japheth, I want everyone to know, I want to go on the record as saying, I have never really felt unsafe riding in a car with Japheth de Oliveira. Motion sick once, but never really unsafe. But I tell you this story because after I said cute, Japhet made this face, and he was smiling with most of his face, but I could see in his eyes, he was saying, I'll show you how cute, cute can really be. And so a week or so later, we were traveling together, experiencing the joy of driving in the mountains to a wedding here in Colorado. And I have to tell you that Japhet's new vehicle is more than cute. It exceeds expectations. It exceeds speed limits. It, it exceeds It is a beautiful car in every way. And it, it, we, were, we were actually part of a, a group of vehicles that day that were, that were enjoying uh, the drive. And as we were driving, we came up upon, there was, a, there was a vehicle we saw in the distance. And as we got closer very quickly to that other vehicle, it was really ugly. Uh, it was painted black and white, and it had some strange swirls across the back of it. Um, and we realized as we got closer that this wasn't just an ugly paint job. This was actually a prototype Lamborghini SUV. An even more beautiful machine maybe than the one we were in, if, if you could imagine such a thing. But they had painted it so ugly so people like me wouldn't be tempted to take pictures as we drove by. And as we, as we passed, that's right, we passed the Lamborghini. As we passed it, um, 
we noticed that we were actually part of a stream. There was, next to us, there was a stream of vehicles all enjoying the mountain drive. They were all prototypes from different manufacturers. They all had the same manufacturer plates on the back, and they were all out for a test drive, and it was glorious. We were there together, enjoying the road, and as we came around this one corner, we became aware of the presence of another vehicle also on the road with us, also with a unique paint job. With two words on the side, they really wanted us to, they, they, unlike the, the Lamborghini that didn't want our attention, this vehicle begged for our attention with these two words, state trooper. And so we did as you do when you see those, those words on the road. Japheth let off the accelerator and immediately we began to coast, maybe a little closer to the suggested speed limit. And Japheth and I sat and we watched in amazement and awe, soaking in the gravity of the moment as that officer just eased right in in front of us, turned on their lights and their siren and proceeded to pull the car over immediately in front of us. And we sat in stunned silence, sort of took it all in, and I said what I thought was the only thing that was appropriate, which is, I am definitely telling this story when I preach in June. <laughs> because we're talking about this letter, Paul, in, in the letter of Romans, uh, deals with this idea of the law and grace, and how do these two ideas sort of dance together? And as we, as we rode in that car, we recognized that someone in another car was getting a ticket that really we all deserved. Not just our car, but all the other cars that were on the road with us that morning. And so that brings us to our first recalibrate question for the day. Have you ever paid the price for someone else's crime? Now, if you're joining us for the first time today, we're, we're, we're concluding this series on this section of Romans, but we're actually, next week, we're beginning another series that will sort of pick up where this one leaves off. Um, but when we, when we talk about the book of Romans, we have to remember that it's a lot of things. We've divided it up today. We call it a book sometimes, but really, when it was written, it was a letter from a guy named Paul to a group of his friends. And so there are a lot of things about this letter that are pretty unremarkable. It includes the kinds of things that we might write to a friend or to a loved one or to a group of friends. But one thing that is remarkable about the letter is the way that it still speaks. It still addresses issues that we deal with today. We realize we're not so different from maybe from the Romans that Paul was writing to. So here's, here's one example. Uh, does anybody here have any smart friends? You can raise your hand, that's okay. Um, some of you are thinking, no, I don't have any smart friends. I am the smart friend. That's fair. Fair enough. Um, but I've learned a lot of things from my smart friends, just from hanging out with them. One of the things that I've learned is that I'm often not as smart as I used to think I was. Um, sometimes I think I, I see things a certain way. I understand things, a particular, my particular point of view. And then one of my smart friends says, well, have you ever thought about it this way? And I have to say, well, no. And then I realized that maybe I'm not as smart as I used to think I am. Another thing that I've learned from my smart friends is that smart people use smart people words. They use words like orthopraxy, 
an orthodoxy, an orthodontia, orthopedics. They use the kind of words that I have to, they, they force me to sort of stop and ask them, I'm sorry, could you tell me what the word that you just said means so that we understand what we're talking about? Uh, I had a professor in college who was this kind of, he was a brilliant theologian, a great teacher. He was from the South, and so he had a thick Southern accent, but it didn't stop him from using these really big, smart people words. And we used to think that it was just our class. I used to think it was just me in the class that didn't understand him. And then I started talking with some of the other professors in the religion department. And they would say, oh, we always have to ask Woody to, to stop and go back and repeat himself. And so one day in class, he, we used to do this. We would, he would be going on and the, the class would sort of glaze over because he'd used a whole string of these words. And so we'd have to raise our hand and say, I'm sorry, could you go back to the beginning when you said hello and explain the rest of the words so we can get, kind of get caught up? And so one day he said to us, listen, this is my best impersonation of him, but he said, listen, I want you to understand where I am coming from. And so if I use a word and it's not familiar to, he was really nice about it, very gentlemanly. It's not familiar to you. Would you just raise your hand, baby? He called us all baby in the class. We were all, would you just raise your hand, baby? And so we started to do that. And he would redefine the word. And by the end of that semester, as he was lecturing, he'd be, you know, using the words. And my hand would go up on this side of the class. And he had learned by that point not to stop the class. He would just sort of casually stroll over to my side of the room and he would say, in other words, what I mean is, and then he would just continue. We didn't have to stop and define it all. But I tell you that story because I think Paul was one of these kinds of guys. And this section of scripture especially, in this, uh, in this letter, I think he may have gotten carried away because he was trying to communicate how complex and how beautiful and how big the work is that Jesus did for us on the cross. What is part of this work of salvation and redemption? What is everything that happened? And I think Paul must have been one of these smart, smart guy friends because um, theologians today still argue over what he meant by some of these words. We still can't come up with a single cohesive definition. And part of that, I think, is that we, um, this is a, it, it illustrates a problem that we have with language and with perspective. You see, we like to think sometimes that everyone sees things from our point of view. Does anyone here remember what an answering machine is? Okay, good. A few of us do. Uh, it used to be this thing, like now we have voicemail on our phone and it's all here, but we used to have this box that we plugged into the wall between our phone and the wall, and you would leave a message there for people who called your house, right? And you would try and sound clever and cute and welcoming and outgoing. And, um, but inevitably, the, the experience for us all was the same. As we were setting up this message, we would record what we thought was the ideal answering machine message, and then we would hit play because we wanted to be sure we didn't sound like an idiot, right? And so we would hit play, and we would listen to ourselves, and we would all say the same thing. Do I really sound like that. And everybody else in the house would say, yeah, you sound, it sounds exactly like, and we'd say, really? 
Because there's something about the way your voice sounds in your own head that's so different from the way it sounds when you hear it uh, on the answering machine. I had another experience with this um, this week. I went to Safeway, our local grocery store in Estes Park. And you know as it happens sometimes you wander around the grocery store, you're getting different things, and you, you run into some of the same people in one department or the next. And there was a lady that I saw in a few different departments. I even saw her at the, at the checkout at the end. Uh, and as I was walking to my car, I was leaving the store, walking to my car, and I turned and I, I saw this lady was behind me and I thought, what are the chances that we parked in the same area? And so I'm walking to my car and I was trying to think of something clever to say, like, you know, we've got to stop running into each other like this or something that... And as I turned around to say something to her, there was a bony little finger in my face and she said, do not follow me. And I was shocked. And so I said the only thing I could think of, which was the absolute wrong thing to say, because all I said was, okay. And she turned around and walked away. And I was still kind of in shock as I was going back to my car thinking, you know, what? How, how could I have, you know, I was thinking all the, all the, like, first I started with jabs, like, why would I follow you? And, and then I thought, I should have just told her, I'm not following anybody. And I thought, well, she would never believe that if she thought I was following. And then all of a sudden I realized our perspective on this same situation was so different. Something had shaped the way she had experienced the Safeway grocery store. And, our and I wished all of a sudden that we had had like a third party, somebody that could have said, well, have you ever thought of it this way? Not just because I didn't want her to think I was a creep, which hopefully I wasn't, but also because I realized that she, something about my presence in the store that day had made her feel unsafe or like she was less than or like she, there was something threatening. Um, I felt really terrible about it. And I say all of this because I think we, when we encounter a, a, a section of scripture sometimes like Romans, this, this section in particular, um, which is so tightly packed with all these different ways of explaining what the gospel is and what the work is that Jesus does, it's easy for us sometimes to think that we just our perspective is the only perspective, or there's only one set of language to describe what's going on, and that somehow that paints the complete picture. But the truth is, there are a few terms that Paul uses in this section, and the first one of those is redemption. Now, the terminology that Paul uses actually is legal language, but it comes from the marketplace, and it means not just to buy something, but to buy it back, to purchase it back with a price. And so this, the word that he uses is similar to the language we would use describing the story of the children of Israel when they were redeemed from the land of Egypt, when they were redeemed from Pharaoh. They weren't just rescued, but they were redeemed. It came at a cost. But this language alone, the redemption language, to buy something back, doesn't really fully capture what happened at the cross because if it did we could chase it down some weird rabbit holes and start to ask some really difficult questions. For example, we believe God created everything. And if God created everything, 
then it means God created a system where we as humanity could be bought and sold. But if God loves us, then why would he create such a system? Why would he create us and treat us like property? And you start to see why this language could be a little bit problematic. But I'm not going to answer that question today. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Another word that Paul uses here is propitiation. We don't use this word in in conversation very often today. Um, Quite possibly because we don't, we still don't have a full idea. The language is not clear cut. It's not perfectly uh, understood. We can't all seem to completely agree. But it comes from the Greek word hilasterion. You can say that, hilasterion. Use it at lunch today. It will impress someone. Um, Today we understand the word propitiation as sort of a, a satisfying the wrath of an angry God. That's probably one of the most common understandings of the word. But there are actually other ways to understand it, other ways to interpret it. For example, for the Jews that were reading Paul's letter, the word hilasterion would have reminded them of something from their past. When they were being redeemed from Egypt, when they were being rescued, they had a, a portable church that they set up every week. Today we have portable churches that happen in gymnasiums and city halls and other places and everything goes into a neatly packed Tupperware that goes in the corner. And I visited a church about two years ago who did this. Every single week, they would pull out all their church supplies and set it up. They would show up even earlier than we do here in the morning. And because worship was such a priority for them, they actually spent more time setting up and taking down all their equipment than they did during the worship service. It was that much of a priority. Now here in Boulder, we, have a, we don't have to do as, as much setup and take down every week. We have this building and every 30 or so years we vote to do some important maintenance on the building. Um, but we don't understand quite the same uh, idea of portable church that the children of Israel would have. See, every time their community moved, they had the tabernacle, they had a church that they would set up And when it was time to move, they would take it down. And there were so many symbols, so many rituals within the tabernacle, within the building itself, that all pointed, whether they realized it or not, toward the Messiah, to Jesus. One of the things that they celebrated was a day called the Day of Atonement. It represented the removal of sins from the entire entire nation. Not just one person, not just the high priest, who performed the service, but for the entire nation. Now, as part of this, uh, as, as part of the ritual, as part of the routine for the day, there was a lamb, an innocent lamb that was, what, that was killed, and its blood was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. Some of you right now are thinking of Harrison Ford and Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was nothing like that. But there was a particular part of the Ark that was called the Mercy Seat, Coincidentally, as it turns out, the word hilasterion can also be translated specifically to mean the mercy seat. So for the Jews that were reading this, they would have recognized right away the connection for Paul. There's something about the sacrifice, the sprinkling of blood, the mercy seat. There's something about that. There's a connection between that and what Jesus did on the cross. But even this has some problematic language in it. For example, there were so many different symbols within the tabernacle that all supposedly pointed toward the Messiah, 
how could all of these things, how could the blood of the lamb and the mercy seat, and how could all of these things point toward the same savior? And so even this imagery is not perfectly clear. Um, But it was Paul who famously wrote in another one of his letters that we don't see things perfectly clearly right now. This is my paraphrase. We don't see things perfectly clear right now. Right now, it's kind of like we're looking in a foggy mirror. But one day, we will see things as if we're face to face. And so I want to ask you our second recalibrate question this morning, which is this. Where have you seen a clearer picture of Jesus in your life recently? Face to face is an interesting place to be. Face to face can be refreshing. It can be a different perspective but can also be really uncomfortable. Uh, When I was in college, I took a year off to travel with a ministry group, and we played games, and we would speak, and we would uh, go door to door, we would do service projects, we would do all sorts of things, but we also uh, did some improv comedy stuff to sort of like break the ice. But in order to prepare for that, in order to be sure that we were good at it, which I don't know that we ever really were, but in order to try and be better at it, we took a whole week before we set out on our adventure and we would play all sorts of different games so that we'd be comfortable with these. They'd be part of our routine. And one of the ones that we played was called Soul Gazing. And you could probably guess, each of us, you know, we were all college students. Uh, we, were, we were paired up with another person and it was sort of like a staring contest. Like you're allowed to blink, but you just have to look into each other's eyes as deeply as you can. And for a group of college students, like this had potential to be really romantic, but it never was. It was always super awkward. It was always, like it turns out that looking at someone for more than three seconds can be kind of an awkward, awkward thing. Because being face to face, we sort of start to notice things about each other. We start to notice things maybe about ourselves. And in fact, it turns out that while we may not be all that good at being face-to-face, one of the things that we are good at sometimes is finding differences between ourselves and the person across from us. Sometimes we do this in really subtle ways. We say things like, oh, your car is really cute, instead of saying, oh, congratulations, that must be fun. Sometimes it's a little bit less subtle. We do this a lot in politics. We use words like liberal, conservative, and we sort of imply a lot of different meanings along with those, like, oh, that person's a liberal. And we say it with a smile, but we really mean that person is some other things. Or that person is a conservative. And the truth is, when it comes to these terms, we sort of throw them around sometimes, but we don't really care about the meaning. We just mean something bad. Like, what exactly are we being liberal with? What exactly are we trying to conserve? But instead, we sort of use the words apart from their meaning as if to say, well, that person is not one of us. Sometimes we do it in really, uh, in, in, in a lot nastier ways. But it turns out that one of the things that we are really good at, not just in church circles, but as human beings, is drawing lines that separate us from them. I think Paul understood that was part of our human nature. I think that's part of why he includes advice to the church in Rome, like there is no distinction. Who has the right to boast? 
Because we're really good at drawing these lines that separate the us's, the we's, the my teams from the your teams. I knew how to do this even when I was a really little kid. Maybe you did too. But there was a pretty short list uh, for how you could identify who was and who was not a Christian. Number one, they didn't smoke. Number two, they didn't drink. Number three, they didn't dance. Number four, no playing cards. Number five, they didn't eat meat, except fish sometimes. And then one day I was at a friend's house. This was a friend that I went to church with, I went to church school with, and we were playing in his room, and we were kicking a ball, which definitely was against the rules, definitely against the law, and we, one of us, I'm not going to say it was me, because I don't think it was, but maybe I just remembered it that way. One of us kicked the ball, and we both, I remember in slow motion as we both watched, and the ball floated up above our heads, and in slow motion hit the light that was up at the top of the room, and then in just glorious, I mean like super HD slow motion, the glass from the light just shattered and went everywhere. And the slow motion stopped when we both realized his dad was standing in the doorway of the room. And so I quickly and judiciously exited the room as, you know, it seemed like the smart thing to do. But as I did, I heard dad mutter four words, I'll whoop his, and I'm not going to tell you the fourth one, because I knew even at six years old, as I repeated the whole ordeal to my mom later the day, in that day, that that was a word no Christian would ever say. I might have been right. But I was really good at identifying who I thought was in, who was out. And the truth is, as I've gotten older, the situations have gotten more complicated. It's not just always a matter of what somebody does or what they look like. But I've had a lot of practice picking out who belongs and who doesn't. I've had a lot of practice creating and seeing the distinctions that Paul is warning us about. You see, Paul's advice to the early church in Rome still rings true for us today. And the problem with creating distinction, and as Jessica reminded us last week, is that we're all in the same boat. Whether we're policemen or being pulled over, whether we're in the Touareg or the Lamborghini, whether you're the smart friend or the guy raising his, his hand in the corner of the room, we're all face to face even if you're watching online. And the bad news is that without Jesus, this ship is sinking. But then again, that isn't really a surprise. None of us needs more voices in our lives telling us we're not doing it right. We don't need another post on Facebook telling us we're not parenting right or exercising enough or adulting to our full potential. There are enough voices in the world saying we don't measure up. And Paul recognized it. And in fact, I think he seems to agree. That's why he uses this language, why he says, all have sinned. We've all short, fallen short of the glory of God. In prepping for this week, I read an interesting commentary about that phrase. 
all fall short of the glory of God. And I learned that we often have misinterpreted that phrase. We usually interpret it as the, the goodness or the righteousness of God, but Paul uses that phrase, the righteousness of God, in other parts of this text. So if that was what he meant, I think he would have said that here. But instead, he says, the glory of God. Now, that's sort of a, if we just read it and we understand it as the goodness of God, we can probably still understand it that way, but that's sort of what Pastor Japheth might call a, a Duplo understanding of the text. And if you don't know the Duplo technic analogy, you should talk to Japheth about it sometime. It's, it's this idea, sometimes we build things with the simple blocks, right? But sometimes there's more. Sometimes it's more complex, more beautiful. There's more for us to see. And so I want to share some technic insight with you this morning. Some commentators think that we might understand this phrase, the glory of God, as the image of God. Well, we read in Genesis 1, verse 26, that God created man and woman in the image of God. Paul would have understood this. And so for, the, for him, the connection was clear. We were created in the image of God, but somehow, because of sin, that's not the place where we live anymore. He's essentially saying to the church in Rome and to us as readers today, friends, because of, because of sin, None of us is who we were created to be. But because of God's incredible love for us, he gave us the gift of Jesus, who was more than enough for any of our shortcomings. We know the law is important. We're hardwired to recognize it. But who of you could keep the law so perfectly as to compete with the beautiful and complex gift of Jesus Christ? So this brings us to our third recalibrate question for the morning. Have you been confronted with the image of God in your own life lately? A couple months ago, if you, um, if you get the daily walk from this church, you may recognize this story, but a couple of months ago, I accidentally joined a basketball league. I know that when you see me, you instantly think basketball player, but I'm not a natural. In fact, I'm a very unnatural basketball player. Um, I, I thought when I got the invitation to play that I had said no very clearly. In fact, what I said was, I would love to play, but I am unusually bad at basketball, so thank you, but no thank you. The next thing I knew, I got an email saying, welcome to the team. Our first practice is... Um, and so I tried to sort of back out based on just sort of general and severe unfamiliarity with the sport. And I don't think anyone really believed me until those glorious two minutes that I spent on the court. Uh, it's still a blur for most people, but I have heard that I set records for how many times a whistle could be blown in 120 seconds. At first, the referees, I think, uh, just thought maybe I didn't care what we were doing there that day. But it, as it turns out, there are rules in basketball. It's more than put the ball through the circle thingy. Um, and I learned a lot of them in those two minutes. Before they pulled me out, before, they, before the captain said, you're right, you shouldn't be here, the refs would just sort of blow the whistle and I'd sort of hand the ball to someone. I didn't know who it was. I would just sort of give it to someone else and 
make my way off the court, which apparently you're also not supposed to do. You're supposed to wait before you leave. Um, if I'm honest, I struggled with most of that season, if you could call it a season. It was seven games, eight games, Jared? It was a season. Um, I struggled because I didn't want to be a liability to my team. Like, it wasn't just that I wanted to be good at basketball. I didn't want to destroy things for everyone else. And then the night of our last game, um, I realized something. I realized something I wish that I had learned so much earlier in that season. See, I wasn't on the team because our captain, Nolan, thought I was going to be, you know, an all-star player. I wasn't invited, I, I was invited to be on the team because Nolan wanted me to know the other players on the team. He wanted me to be part of this group of guys who were talking to each other, who were learning about each other's lives, who were maybe even having a little bit of fun playing basketball. And you know what? We rallied and we won the tournament. That's not true at all. We lost so badly. The night before the tournament, our team lost so badly with my help that they asked us not to come back for the tournament. We were the only team there wasn't room for on the tournament bracket. And so we, they said, it's been fun. But we were on the team together. We were in the same boat on a journey of learning, supporting, and encouraging each other as brothers. None of us were perfect players. Some of us were much worse than the others. But the point of it was that we were there together. And I realize as I'm telling you this story, this may sound like a, an oversimplification of what Paul is, is writing about here. And in many ways it is. Uh, after all, I am still the guy who has to raise his hand when someone uses the word propitiation in casual conversation. But one thing that I've learned from my smart friend Paul is that when I consider what Jesus has done for me, I can't afford to treat anyone else like they're second-class citizens, like they don't belong, like they're less than, which is why I feel really guilty when I creep them out at the grocery store. I have a responsibility, furthermore, as a, as a follower of Jesus, not to just practice this better, not to just do better at this in my own life, but to look for opportunities to do this with the people around me in my home, in my neighborhood, in my church, in my grocery store, my local and city, and maybe even my national government. There's a phrase that we say here in Boulder, and we say it almost every week. And when we say it, it might sound sort of like, like we say it sometimes and people say, oh, you're from Boulder. Because it sounds like sort of hippy-dippy, loosey-goosey, sort of like social gospel stuff. It's just about, you know, feel good. In fact, some people have said, when we say this too much, we're watering down the gospel, as if we could do that. Critics of these words have said, we have to hold people to a higher standard. You can't just love people. What they usually mean is that we should all learn to help people behave a little bit better. So while I was doing my prep for this week, one of my favorite sources was a book by Bob Goff called Everybody Always, Becoming Love in a World Full of Setbacks and Difficult People. And Bob has a, t has a habit of telling really great stories. Some of them sometimes are so far-fetched, you would not believe this guy has actually done so many of the things he's done. 
But he kind of put a, put a bead on this, and this is what he said. We will become people in our lives, we'll, sorry, we'll become in our lives whoever the people we love most say we are. God did this constantly in the Bible. He told Moses he was a leader, and he became one. He told Noah he was a sailor. He became one. He told Sarah she was a mother, and she became one. He told Peter he was a rock, and he led the church. He told Jonah he'd be fish food. Well, he was. If we want to love people the way God loved people, maybe we need to let God's spirit do the talking when it comes to telling people what they want because all the directions we've given them aren't getting people to the feet of Jesus. More often, the unintended result is they lead these people back to us. And then Bob says this, here's the problem. When we make ourselves the hall monitor of other people's behavior, we risk having approval become more important than Jesus' love. Now, I'd like to suggest to you this morning that you may choose to say this differently. There may be different words that you use to articulate it, but there is no higher standard than to live love because to live love requires things that we do different. Do we do things differently? We want to deal out justice. We want to pull people over to the side of the road and tell them how the law works. But when your kid throws a fit or your boss or your spouse throws a fit or somebody cuts you off in traffic, what's the easier thing to do? To tell them how the law really works or to show them the love of Jesus? This is something I'm still working out. Not easy. I don't know what it looks like, but lucky for me, there's someone in my house who does. She's almost seven. The beginning of this year, we moved into uh, a new apartment and we have our our garage downstairs where we do our our screen printing work and upstairs uh, is where we live. We still do some work up there, but the, the really great thing about this place is that we can sort of turn the kids loose on a project while we're also getting our work done. And we know that they're close enough they can find us. Well, upstairs we have two other doors in that hallway that lead to our neighbors' homes. So sometimes they get to hear some of our strange conversations. But one of our neighbors was in a car accident earlier this year. And so as I was working downstairs one day, Ellie came down the stairs and she said, Daddy, can I make a card for our neighbor? And I thought, yeah, that's a great idea. Why don't you make a card for our neighbor? One card, one neighbor. But what I discovered when I walked back up the stairs was that Ellie had not made one card for one neighbor, but she had made all the cards for all the neighbors. From as low as she could reach on the door to as high as she could reach on these doors, they were plastered with cards. And of course, I didn't read them, most of them, because that would have been against the law. But I was able to sneak a peek at one of them, and it said, Dear neighbor, I love you. Please come over from Ellie in 202. It seems too simple, right? It seems too easy. What about a higher standard? Well, I want to encourage you today that maybe practicing the higher standard is the more difficult road of living love to the people around us sometimes. And so today, as you go from this place, May you find peace knowing that, as Paul reminds us, no amount of do-gooding 
or bad doing for that matter can outdo what Jesus has already done for you. And may you realize that whatever image of God you see in your own life, it's still only a poor reflection of what Jesus is working out in your story. And may you show the grace and love of Jesus to the others with whom you are in the same boat. And may you fill the doors of your neighbors with love notes.